Hello, I'm Angus Scott and this is The Debrief. Thanks for joining us again. What a week it's been. Harry Kane finally moved to Munich, saying he didn't want to end his career with regrets. Moises Caicedo at last looks to be heading to Stamford Bridge after a never-ending saga. And huge young England prospect Alex Scott left Bristol City for the bright lights of Bournemouth. Well, there's plenty more news on the transfer front, and we'll get to that very shortly. Fabrizio Romano will be with us before too long, so stand by for the transfer guru. My sidekick, Ben Jacobs, has finally left America, but I'm sure he's trying to dodge a tax bill because he's now out in Saudi Arabia. Ben, tell us the truth. Yeah, less sidekick, more sound kick as far as this week's show is concerned. I'm in Damam and I'll be watching Al Itifak, Stephen Gerrard's club, take on Cristiano Ronaldo's Al Nasser. And the big news here, which I'm sure Fabrizio will touch upon, is Neymar is off to Al Hilal. And that should be announced either today or tomorrow. That's news. Uh, and, the, and the figure, I think the salary is looking like two million dollars a week or something like that. Anyway, we'll, we'll come to that, of course. But today we focus on Manchester United. With the news that the takeover situation may finally be resolved, it's perfect time to talk to a man who knows Old Trafford better than most. Rennie Moulinstein spent six years as Sir Alex Ferguson's right-hand man as his first-team coach. He's also managed clubs in Qatar, Denmark, England, Israel and India, and he's now assistant coach with the Australian national side. His latest book, United, Sir Alex and Me, is out now. And I'm pleased to say Rennie is here on the debrief today. Rennie, lovely uh, for you to be with us. Thanks very much indeed. Um, it's all go at United. What do you make of, of the takeover talk? I mean, this morning, talking that it could be in the, in the region of £7.2 billion pounds to take over the great club. <laughs> Well, we've had we've heard that before, obviously, and the fans and the fans hear that all the time. So they, I don't think they get carried away with it too much. But I hope really there, there's got to be some clarity for everybody, for the fans and and, and, and the club as well, and to making sure that the the owners that come in are the right ones and have have got the right vision and ideas to take the club forward over the next uh, next years. You've said before you think it's best that the Glazers go. Yeah, I have. I have. I think uh, there's two ways to it. You need to look at it. Okay, what what have they actually constructively done in terms of, you know, helping the club financially, helping the managers, and, and that, I don't think there's an issue there. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they spent more than one billion, you know, after Sir Alex Ferguson left for all the managers that took over. So, the managers had the support to bring the players in. Um, Ten Hag has had that this year as well. I think the biggest issue is is that. There's been a lack of communication, a lack of transparency. There's a lack of emotional attachment, so to speak. There's no fan that can associate themselves with the owners and to say they're really great guys, they care for the club, they love the club. There's none of that. Basically, the Glazers have made a very, very clever move back then by by buying Man United because they knew what sort of you know brand they could build it into and 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 what sort of money would be evolved and you know, just you mentioned seven plus billion and just look at it where they bought it for so it's uh, it's been for them business-wise a really really lucrative deal do you think it was just business always for them they don't really care about the club they just that they want to extricate as much money out of it they've had it for however long they had it they've, they've turned it around from a billion and a half or whatever it is to potentially mm. over seven billion it, it's worked for them yeah, it's always it's always business. It's always been business. They the, the brand the moment when they they came in, but the, the difference was in our time with Sir Alex and David Gill, we sort of managed that that sort of process of building that brand that it didn't have an effect on us in terms of the players' commitments and and, and having to do all sorts of things. So we managed that, but um, obviously since Sir Alex and David Gill have left, that has expanded. You know, in many many ways, you can see that in in the figures. Obviously, that have that have come out, and like you just, you know, stated just now, it's it's more than worth and more than seven billion. So it's been very lucrative for them. If the Qataris, if it's Sheikh Justin who takes over, I mean, the key point that you said, Rennie, was you want an owner of Manchester United who really cares. Do you think mm. if you you've, you've managed in Qatar, you you know what the yeah. Qataris are like? You know, is is Sheikh Justin someone who's going to care more than the Glazers? I would think so. I know the people very well. I still have got warm. I've got fond memories of my time there. I spent eight, eight years there in Qatar between 
93 and 2001, and it was absolutely nothing what it is now because the coup took place in 95. And then the, the, the Sheikh Hamid bin Khalifa, actually the father of Emir, the current Emir, Sheikh Tamim, who was, my, who was my boss at Al, Al Saad, and, uh, and also Sheikh Jassim, that is really keen on, on, on the football side of things, who built Aspire and who was instrumental in bringing the World Cup to. Uh, to Qatar, I know all those people, and they they care because they care about football uh, very much so in their own country, and they will care about when they come into United. The key is to making sure that they will have the funding to making sure that they keep bringing the right people in that can uh, build on the culture and an identity that Manchester United has stood for for so many years, and and basically what what Sir Matt Busby and Sir Alex Ferguson has built. And I need to come to you here because you're very close to this uh, takeover, and and you you're not necessarily convinced that any announcement is going to be made shortly, and that and that, that even that the Glazers have have decided who they want to take over United. Well, I think we just have to be clear that the comments of this sale in excess of seven billion come from the Cardiff City owner in a throwaway comment, and. Naturally, Manchester United fans are waiting for some clarity, and that's what the whole process really has been about. The Glazers showing their hands, and they haven't, and this is also why the Manchester United Supporters Trust released a statement recently saying that what the Glazers are doing is ultimately showing cowardice and holding the fan base and the football club to ransom until they get their number. The reason why I think that we should take the price with a pinch of salt, even if some form of announcement is to come over the coming days or weeks, is because the two main groups that have been bidding have been around the five billion mark, maybe something north of that. So there's no indication that any of those groups would have suddenly jumped up by over two billion. And this isn't a transfer that suddenly goes from five to seven million and you say, OK, maybe they just really wanted it. This is a football club and two billion plus is the entire price, for example, of Chelsea Football Club. So we have to be very careful. There has always been a feeling that the Glazers haven't got their price. And some argue that eventually Qatar will pay what it takes to get the football club. And this is ultimately why after the April the 28th final deadline in the process, we saw Qatar bid not just one more time, but two more times. But still, the valuation of the groups and the valuation of the Glazers is apart. And as a result, to think that one of those two groups or another party might have suddenly gone above 7 billion feels unthinkable to me, especially when you consider that why would you go that high and jump that number when you're not up against any competition. There isn't a bidding war. So this is why I think the notion and the price has a few red flags to me at this point from talking to sources. And we're still waiting for clarity. And clarity might be eventually with the Glazers coming out and saying something. It might be with a statement via the club when we get to that point. But first and foremost, the groups are still waiting for communication and a green light to see whether they've won. And then from there, there is an acquisition process as well. So I think we have to be very cautious by these latest reports because they're not consistent with the time frame that the groups or sources close to Manchester United have given and the price is not consistent with previous offers placed by either Sheikh Jassim or Sir Jim Ratcliffe so it would be very surprising if that number is accurate. I think as well Ben, just just one one from Ben because it's important to know for the listeners as well um, obviously, I just I just mentioned in my conversation, Sheikh Jassim, and rightly so, that is not the same Sheikh Jassim that is probably involved in the bidding process with Man United because there are That's different right. ones. But they will be backed by, you know, the, the sort of almost <clears throat> state of Qatar, as you like, the consortium, whoever's been involved. The bit that there's maybe, like you said, that doesn't make sense, why would they jump from five to seven? I think if the, if the, if the Qatar is seeing to overtake... Um, Manchester United, they want to do it 100%. And I think that's where a little bit one of the things and issues is because there's constantly been rumours and speculation and, 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 and reports coming out now. The Glazers maybe still want to be involved in some shape or form. You know what I mean? And um, and that is, and that is I think, one of the things that can absolutely be, if I would be the new takeover, 
you know, not, not acceptable, you know, but the, the, the key to use, you hit the nail on the head. Yes, there is some things leaked through the media, but we all don't know how, how basically how genuine it is. And, and that has been going on for months. So why would we now suddenly take this as being the, you know, the be and end all? So, yeah, we have to wait and see until there's a formal statement coming out. And for you, Rennie, would Manchester United only start get, getting back to its former glories if the Glazers weren't there? Well, that's always it's hard to say because at the end of the day, I think this, this United has sort of drifted away from from what they were on the Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, uh, and that's already 10 years gone by without really challenging for the Premier League title. And that's what Man United should be about. And that is exactly what, what Eric Ten Hag is going to try to, to bring the team back to. Now, that's easier said than done because other teams have moved on. You know, there's so many, been so many developments in all the teams. Manchester City has kept building because they knew, they knew from the word go that Sir Alec Ferguson was leaving. This is the time to invest. This is the time to pounce. We bring the best manager in. They had everything in place with the guys in the, in, in, in the, you know, in the, in the director's uh, box with the right people, Bigley Stein and all those people. So they had a great vision, a great strategy. And, and, and they said, this is what we need, this is what we need, this is what we need. What you get is five Premier League titles in, in six years and, and winning the treble last year. Liverpool followed suit, similar, but they've lost the way a little bit over the last two seasons. That's going to be interesting. Look at what's happening at Newcastle. Uh, Chelsea have to fight their way back. Arsenal is coming back strong. They had a great season last year. So it's not, it's not as easy as it said. But when the new owners come in, when there's, again, there's clarity and there is a certain way of going about the business in relation to the culture and identity that has been built, like I said before, by Sir Alex Ferguson, then I can't see why not United will be successful again in the future. Do you think the planning process then, that everybody else seemed to have, they knew, well, everyone knew that Sir Alex was going sooner or later. Do you think the planning process at Manchester United was not there then? Well, there was there, but it was the wrong one. I mean, uh, I, I explained that. No, but I explained it in my in my book, Angus, because I say in my book that I had a conversation with David Gill at some point. We were pre-season. I can't even remember whether it was 2010 or 2011, but we we had a coffee and we shared some conversation. And one of the things that came up was that I said, "Listen, David, your biggest challenge is to manage Manchester United beyond the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson. And there's only two ways, two tracks to basically deal with that." Number one, which I think is the best track, is to make Sir Alex part of that whole process. So don't don't say I'm leaving at the end of the season, but you announce your departure in-house and you try to find somebody within in-house or within the contacts that are close to and can do management United and you bring him, as it were, slowly to the front and then you basically fade, you fade yourself into the background. That means that the stability and continuity remains the people that are running the machine, the machine room, they stay the same. So there's not really any any big changes taking place. The other track is that yes, so Alex Ferguson does walk out the door, and somebody else comes in, and then obviously that is what happened. And obviously the succession plan has obviously been discussed by obviously Ed Woodward and the Glazers, and they decided for Ed Woodward to take David Gill's place, and you know, and they went from there. And it's in hindsight, we can all say that wasn't. That wasn't a success. Rene, Do you think you should have managed Manchester United? No. No. No, I was, I was, listen, I'll be very honest with you. I was, I was, I, you have to sometimes be honest with yourself and don't get carried away with, with, you know, certain ambitions, especially not ego. I mean, I had the best job in the world. First team coach of Man United and I did what I felt what I was really good at. And it created a lot of space for Sir Alex Ferguson himself because I know it is very intense if every day you have to think about, you know, your training sessions in the morning, how you manage your players. That goes on 24-7. If you don't have to spend any time on that, you can concentrate on other things. And uh, it was per- I was perfectly uh, in my place. So was McFeedon as assistant manager. And so was obviously the manager as the manager. And we worked together, you know, as a brilliant team um, with other guys. So... Um, I don't think that was uh, that was any any case any time. <laughs> Rene, in the book you talk about the Mullenstein method, and that is coaching orientated. But when you come into a club like Manchester United, I think 
we have seen this at Chelsea with Bowley Clearlake, and no doubt it will be the same for other big branded clubs like PSG that are always going to combine football and politics. Do you have to adapt the approach? Because I sort of get the sense that what Sir Alex and you and others did well was align the football and the culture to the business. And that was partially because Sir Alex Ferguson seemingly had a fair amount of autonomy. Whereas since Sir Alex Ferguson, it feels like it's all about the Glazers and the business and any new manager coming in has struggled to really stamp their authority. So how do you ensure coming into a club like Manchester United as a coach anyway, especially now, the football comes first? Well, because it's very simple to to explain the owners, because if you if the football doesn't work and you don't get the, the performances and especially the results to challenge for trophies, and, and any of the clubs or the likes of Man City, Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, all those those big clubs, then also the brand the brand will suffer. Um, so that was that was always the key. Football comes first, and that should always be, uh, you know, the priority priority number one. But for me, for me coming into Man United in two thousand and one, and that was again testament to sort of Sir Alex's sort of vision together with Les Kershaw, the academy manager at the time, because. Howard Wilkinson had all established all these academies around, you know, the country. And basically what they observed was, yes, we've got all the facilities, we've got all the coaches, but we haven't got the content. We have at least not got the technical content to develop those players from a young, from an early age on. And through Dave Richardson, I got in touch with uh, Les Gershaw, basically, because Les Gershaw asked Dave Richardson, listen, we are looking for a technical coach. We can't find anybody. Can you recommend someone? And they've recommended me. So that was my first way in into United to basically, you know, starting to shape that grassroots development to making sure that those kids got exposed to the best possible technical development and skill development they had, had to educate coaches, had to educate parents, etc. But also in those in that time, I had numerous conversations with Sir Alex Ferguson about where are you now? What have you won up to now? And how are we going to maintain that success? So partly how to do maintain the success is making sure that we develop young players that can meet the technical demands of the game 10 years from now. And it seems a long time, but it isn't if you look back, because if you see how many players that I sort of also was part of the development, whether you go back to the Danny Welbacks and the Tom Cleverley and, you know, all of them and look at uh, Marcus Rashford and uh, McTominay, they've all come through it. You know, they've already, they've already played a big part in Manchester United. So that was the main vision. But the biggest difference was when I was able to convince Sir Alex, we can still gain an advantage with first team players. And even if it's one, two to 5%, but that 5%, that will ensure us winning more games. Therefore, you know, bigger chances to win leagues and trophies. And that is when I was able to progress to the club as a skill development coach going into the reserves and eventually ending up working with the first team. And 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 to be you know if you look back like I said it's not only me so Alec Ferguson McFeelin Tony Strelick myself Simon Wells Eric Steele it became the most successful period in the history of Man United but I knew that extra bit that will give us an edge and and the proof the proof is there for everybody to see so when you sort of talk about developing that skill set and almost having longevity so a player evolves with football, which is obviously what Chelsea are trying to do as well with a lot of young talent that will grow into the price tag and therefore the transfer fee becomes an investment rather than necessarily an expense. But from a coaching point of view, when you talk about that and in the context of, say, Cristiano Ronaldo or Robin Van Persie, how do you actually spot it? Because you're seeing this young talent that will always have a risk-reward element to them early how do you go through that process of due diligence to second guess how they're going to involve using either gut instinct or science or data and maybe go into a little bit of detail about how that sort of transpired in terms of the talent ideation with the likes of Ronaldo or RVP? Yeah, but you, you, it depends on where you're looking at, Ben. What sort of players are you selecting? See, if it, in, in, in selecting or uh, identifying players that can play for you in the first team, that level, it is always about uh, being and becoming. 
So what I tried to say with that is if, uh, Man United at the time when, when I was there with Sir Alex first, we had a strategy that predominantly we would sign players 23 or younger. So those are uh, less being. Yeah? They can play in the first team, but they are more becoming. That was when Cristiano Ronaldo came to the club. Yeah, there was the, he could already play for the first team, but <clears throat> there was so much more potential. So there was a big upside. That is becoming. Being is Robin van Persie. You bring in an established uh, Premier League player that you know that has played many years for a club like Arsenal. You know his style, you know his stats, the assists, you know his, his goal scored, and you can put him in straight away and you know, guarantee that he will perform for you because obviously not only you look at him as a person and his personality, you look at his style of play and if it fits in in the way that we want to play. So, um, yeah, I think that is also the, the experience then that, that shines through and the expertise that everybody brings to the table. Those are not not too difficult uh, situations. If you look at youth development, and that's completely different cattle of fish in terms of how to identify young players there. This is The Debrief and we're talking to Rennie Mullenstein. His latest book, United, Sir Alex and Me, is out now. Well, as we know, United have been pretty busy in the transfer market and it looks like there's more work to be done. So let's catch up with our transfer guru, Fabrizio Romano, to get the latest transfer news. And here is Fabrizio, the most influential man on Twitter or X, whatever we call it these days. But we've we've managed to find our usual 10 minutes with him. So, Fab, we're talking about Manchester United this week. They want a centre-back, really. So is is Pavard likely, Benjamin Pavard? Yeah, I would say that he's the big favourite. Together with Jean-Claude Thibault, I think he's in second position. But the favourite candidate is is Benjamin Pavard, because the player wants the move, is very clear on this. Uh, from what I'm hearing, Pavard already communicated to Bayern that he wants to go. He's not going to sign a new contract. He's out of contract in summer 2024, and he has this possibility to go to Manchester United. He was also in the list at Man City to replace Kyle Walker, but then at the end, Walker decided to stay at the club and sign a new contract. And so for Pavard, this big opportunity to go for Man United is something that he really wants to do, so he's pushing to make it happen. Uh, May United on Friday approached Bayern, but the initial approach was not successful because Bayern told them that they have, at the moment, no intention to sell. Right after the player started to sell very clear message to the club, he wants to go. He wants to get this opportunity to play for uh, Man United, and so I think he's the favorite candidate. In case it won't happen, Todibo is another name on the list for sure. May United have been scouting him for a long time. Scouts of May United were also in attendance in the last game of Nice to keep an eye on Todibo against uh, Lille. So he's a player they really, really appreciate. Okay, so that's one of two. We're either looking at Benjamin Pavard. If not him, then maybe Jean-Claire uh, Tobido. Right, we know that Fred has joined Fenerbahce. Does that sort of clear the way for Amrabat to arrive? Yeah, that's the idea. I think Man United want to complete something else in terms of outgoings before making an official bid for Amrabat. So they keep working on the Donny van de Beek deal with the Real Sociedad. It's true that the Real Sociedad are signing one of the best talents in Europe with Arsen Zakarian from Dynamo Moscow. That deal is very advanced at the final stages. But from what I'm told, they are still discussing with May United. For Donny van de Beek, uh, they know that the player wants to go there. Van de Beek is very open to this possibility to play in different country, to have the opportunity to have regular game time that he's not going to have at May United. After many injuries, it's time for him to go. And that's why he's exploring different opportunities. But Real Sociedad is the player's priority. So there is still a discussion ongoing. And then I think after they will clarify the situation of Van de Beek, they will enter into concrete talks for uh, Sofian Amrabat. Could be in the next uh, few days because May United already had discussions with the player side at the end of June, beginning of July, receiving a very positive feedback. Amrabat is keen on the move. Uh, he knows uh, Eriton Hag since the experience they had together at Utrecht in the past in, uh, in the Divisie. So he's really open to making this deal happen. Now it's on the clubs. So we wait for May United to open concrete and official talks with Fiorentina, but for sure Amrabat is the favourite candidate as defensive midfielder. And Harry Maguire to West Ham, is that going to happen? It depends on the player now. Uh, is the player who has to agree personal terms with West Ham and also there is uh, the topic of payoff from Manchester United. It's normal when you have a huge salary as my United captain for many years. It's normal then at the end when you have to leave the club. There is something to clarify in terms of salary. So there is still a discussion ongoing between Maguire and United and between Maguire and West Ham in terms of uh, contract and so salary, personal terms. So that's why it's taking some time. West Ham remain confident. They know that there are also other clubs keeping an eye on Maguire uh, in, uh, in England, but they have an 
agreement with my United, 30 million pounds. So West Ham are convinced that at the end this move will happen, but they still have to do something on the player side. So they will talk again even today and uh, we will see how it's going to proceed. But I think there is a good chance for uh, Maguire to West Ham to happen. And could Scott McTominay follow him there? It's a possibility in this case is different because Man United are not selling for uh, 30 million pounds. They want more than that also because it's an important player for Ayrton Hag. They are not desperate to let him go, especially if Danny van de Beek will leave the club this summer. I think there is a chance also for McTominay to stay uh, as they need some squad depth in that position playing Champions League football uh, this season. So that's why at the moment for McTominay is a possibility. But with West Ham wanting, they have to return with an important proposal because the opening one was not enough to convince Man United. And so that's still the early stage. Stages, not as Maguire. Now, there have been some big signings in Saudi. We know that. But none would be bigger than Neymar to Hilal. Is that going to happen then? Yeah, it's done. Uh, it's a done deal. We just wait for the official statement. But the agreement is uh, is done. It really changed uh, on the night between uh, Saturday and uh, and Sunday. Because in that moment, Halilal presented an improved proposal to Neymar. They already had some discussion in June. But... Then the feeling was for Neymar to probably stay in Europe to negotiate with Barcelona, to try to find a way with Barcelona. And then Alilal presented this very big, big proposal. I'm hearing that the total package is something around $300 million in two years as a salary net for uh, for Neymar Jr. So this is an incredible salary and the player is really tempted by the possibility also to play in a different country to try a new chapter. So he accepted every single clause into the contract. The lawyers have spent the night uh, checking all the documents, but everything is fine. Neymar Jr. is undergoing medical tests today in Paris and then he will travel to Saudi this week. Presentation is ready. Number 10 is ready for Neymar and so I think it's just a matter of a couple of days to see the official announcement but this is an incredible signing for Alilal and also a successful sale for uh, Paris Saint-Germain because they were in difficult position with Neymar this summer they wanted to get rid of him and he wanted to leave but it was not easy to find a common ground in terms of uh, money and uh, they found the solution because they will get a bit less than 100 million euros fee for Neymar Jr. I mean, that is uh, is an extraordinary move, that one from Neymar to Saudi. What about um, Mitrovic? Is it likely that, uh, that he will join him? It's a concrete possibility. Uh, it's the same people involved uh, from Alilal and on player side, same as Neymar, because he shares, he shares the same agents uh, as Neymar Jr. That's why the discussion is obviously focused on Neymar Jr. in the last few, three days, but also Mitrovic. They are discussing, the player is keen on the move. We know that already in July he was prepared to join Alilal. Then they started to negotiate for different players in that position. They had contacts with Jonathan David. They had contacts with Victor Ozyman. Uh, they had contacts for Joe Felix. So they started to explore the European market because they had the feeling that Fulham didn't want to sell Mitrovic. That was a complicated one. Let's see, because I feel that now they are returning. So Alilal want to do the same they did with Neymar. So to return with an improved proposal, they will try to do the same this week for Alexander Mitrovic. So the discussion is ongoing. And I think that that move is a concrete possibility because the player wants to go. And when the player is pushing, uh, I think it's going to be complicated for Fulham to keep him at the club. I think everyone is surprised by the number of names going to Saudi, that it's not just one or two, it's actually mounting now. Are there any others that are in line that might end up starting the season in Saudi? Good question. I think it's still it's still an open story. There are some players, for example, like uh, Eric Bailly, all these players who are at important clubs but not playing regular football, who can have an opportunity to go there. Uh, I mentioned Eric Bailly, but for example, Mario Hermoso at Atletico Madrid is another player who's attracting uh, interest. Then there are important players like Piotr Zielinski, who is a priority target for Al-Akhli. They are pushing to get the deal done with Napoli and they have an agreement with the player and is one of the best midfielders in Serie A uh, alongside Milinkovic-Savic, who already joined Saudi side Alilal. So, they are already working on these kind of names and they are prepared to attack some of these names who are not uh, key players in important clubs. I mentioned Derek Beye, but there are many players with that kind of status. So I think now they are waiting to see what happens on the European market. But look at a player like Romelu Lukaku, for example, who wanted to go to Juventus. At the moment, there is an agreement between Juventus and Chelsea. The deal is in total standby. But if Lukaku remains there at Cobham on the 1st of September for uh, Saudi clubs, it's a big opportunity to bring him there in the three weeks they will have left in September to make deals happen. So that kind of solutions is something that they are exploring. And I think this is just the, the beginning because they are contacting many players. To give you another example, also on free agents. Uh, David De Gea at the moment is still available on a free for example, and you already received some call from Saudi to explore that possibility. So I think there could be some more big names joining Saudi League very soon. Well, we will keep in touch with you for those. Um, Moises Caicedo, it seems that that Chelsea deal is on, not for the price that Chelsea would have wanted because Liverpool nearly hijacked it. 
yeah, that was really close, really close with Liverpool. That Thursday night was insane because Liverpool had a deal in place with Brighton and they were not anticipating any problem on the player side. So that's why also Jurgen Klopp has gone public mentioning the Macy's Caicedo deal as a done deal in terms of clubs and waiting for the player side. But then the player side was the big issue because around lunchtime, Moises Caicedo was very clear. I heard that he speak directly to Jurgen Klopp. So it was player manager and he told him, uh, I want to go to Chelsea. So it was a very clear decision. And from there, Chelsea had to negotiate with Brighton in a tough way because we know how tough it is to negotiate with Brighton, especially when they are in that kind of position, in a perfect position for a selling club in this case for for Moises Caicedo at the end is a done deal for 115 million pounds it includes some add-ons but it's very easy add-ons so Brighton considered that fee as guaranteed fee 115 and also a sell-on close to Brighton which is not a detail because I think it's impressive how they can close incredible deals for players who they signed for 4.5 million pounds just two years ago so congrats to Brighton congrats to Chelsea because they signed a fantastic player and for Caicedo is a eight-year contract with an option for further season. He completed his medical few uh, minutes ago, and now it's time to sign the contract and to announce this big, big deal. Well, that finally, that saga finally comes to an end. But yeah. I wonder how that will impact on the Lavia deal, because, again, that could be uh, Liverpool against Chelsea on this one. And it is, because Chelsea are the big favourites since um, Thursday, Friday. They've been pushing, then they focus their energy uh, on the Caicedo deal. So that's why Liverpool had some ground to enter into the story again and uh, contact Southampton again in the morning. So Liverpool are still there. The deal with Chelsea is not done. Chelsea are the favourites, but Liverpool are still there trying to change this story. So another fight, another battle on the same player, another talented player. So let's see what happens today, tomorrow. But for sure, Liverpool are still trying until the end. They know that Chelsea are in advanced talks. They know that Chelsea have Joe Shields at the club, who is the director who created Romeo Lavia. But Liverpool, until the end, want to try and to and to hijack this move. So I think it's an open story. Fabrizio, thank you for the inside track on all this. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week on The Debrief. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you and see you soon. Thank you. Rene, for you, what do you feel has, has gone wrong at United? You were so successful as a partnership with, with you, Mick, and Sir Alex. What's happened since that's gone wrong? Yeah, I think I've, I've tried to explain it a little bit with how I, how I saw the, how that takeover could have been managed better because any, any successful organisation or any successful football club, they basically base their success on two main pillars, which is stability and continuity. Continuity that had, has to do with the vision uh, that you have to make the club successful on the short, medium, and long term, and the stability that has to do with the people that are with you, you know, for quite some time that bring the expertise and experience to put it into place. So the moment that Sir Alex left, but also Mick left, and Eric Steele left, and I left, then other people come in who have other ideas, so therefore another vision. So that continuity will not carry on so there's there's a new wind blowing uh, in the team and then also a lot of people left and other people came in so you know that stability was gone as well so if you then if you then start off on the wrong foot or you don't really you know it, it goes in the way that you actually anticipated uh, of what everybody else anticipated and obviously you get media pressure and you get questions asked and people get nervous and straight away you saw what happened with with David because after less than a year, you know, they've already changed him for a more experienced manager in, 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 in the name of Louis van Gaal. And again, that didn't work out because, again, the same thing. Everything changes. Continuity goes, no vision, different vision, different style. And more and more, United football style was moving away from what we wanted it to be, the cultural and identity. Play with high energy, play with intensity, play on the front foot, attack. Like I said, Ferguson explained to me, when he promoted me as first team coach through three flip charts, what, what the guidelines were for training. That was the easiest navigation system I could have. But one thing that stood really out for me was this. He said, when I see United attack, I see them attack with pace, power, penetration, and unpredictability. And those four elements, I want you to instill that in that team every single day, no matter what you do. Now, if you look back to Man United's best games, where we really were on fire, those were the, element, the elements that you would see. You know, and, and, and that has basically sort of drained out because every manager has got his own idea. Mourinho comes in, is very pragmatic, is only result-orientated, doesn't really care too much about how they win. Whereas with United, 
with Sir Alex, he felt very strongly that Man United had an obligation to entertain. You know, so if we were unsung, don't stop when it's 2-0. Make it three, make it four, make it five, you know. And if we were losing, you know, whatever 2-1 or whatever it was against Villa and against Tottenham Hotspur, we managed to be able to inject the team with, with some necessary quality and spirit and they turned those games around. That was what United stood for. The best compliment that I've always had was from people from other clubs that they would say to me, listen, Rene, I'm, I'm such and such fan. I really love my club and, and I'm not really a fan of United, but I love to see you guys play. And if you do appreciate football, that's one of the biggest compliments that you can get. That was absolutely it. People would watch that Manchester United side and they'd be wowed for it as a completely random aside, by the way. A few years earlier, I remember Manchester United coming down to the old Filbert Street, believe it or not. And it was actually a second divisional reserve game. And I think Manchester United had the chance to win the so-called Pontins League, one of the first matches I ever went to. So what they did was they sent their entire first team to play that game to try and win the league against Leicester reserves. And Leicester, I believe, won the game. But the point is that people would pay to watch Manchester United. When Leicester first got promoted to the Premier League, people would pay because they wanted to see the Manchester United players, the Manchester United way, the Manchester United aura. Whereas now I think the Premier League is so competitive that there's less of a inferiority complex between the clubs. And this is the growth of the Premier League. And I suppose that's my question to you, Rene, that when you spoke about predicting the player development and their technical skill set 10 years ahead, do you think as well that clubs have to be able to predict the evolution of football to keep pace, obviously on the data side, the medical side, the infrastructure side? And is that the weakness? So the upside of Manchester United has always been that culture it's always been the brand it's always been the football side and under Alex Ferguson it was always success but for me the downside of the foundations because now to succeed on the football side you need a more modern training center you need a stadium redevelopment you need perhaps a football structure with a sporting director uh, Manchester United may be guilty of not taking the same approach that you took on the football side and the ideation side in the sense that they've not planned for that 10 years ahead after Ferguson left on the foundational side and on the infrastructure side. And this is also why they've struggled for continuity since Ferguson departed. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of lot of valid points and I agree with you. But I think one of the biggest qualities that Sir Alec Ferguson had, and there's many, but one of them was his adaptability over the years because he started in 86 and at that particular time, Manchester United was, you know, uh, in, 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 a, in a difficult situation. So he had to, uh, to, to reshape the club with a lot of things. He had to change quite a few things, uh, which he did. He had to inject the, the, you know, the importance of the academy and everything. And where well, we all know that the class of 92 was coming through. And then in 92, when he started winning the first Premier League, he was very clear on by saying, you know, that was a bold statement by saying, you know, I want to, to, uh, to knock Liverpool off the perch you know, after winning one Premier League. So that said, that, that said something about, I'm here, I'm in here for the long haul. Now, the thing with this, with Sir Alex, and like I said, is adaptability that goes two ways. That goes, go with the times and see what developments are taking place. What do we need to do? Which they did. They built Carrington. And there have been plenty of, you know, developments there and, and, and investments there. So they've got a, a state-of-the-art training centre. That's probably not what you could say apart from the towers that they built on Old Trafford, whereas that everybody says it's crying out, it needs it needs updating. You know, you need to look at that. But yeah, we Sir Alex Ferguson, although he wasn't maybe fully, he was very well aware that the technology was going to play a role. But again, let the people deal with it that are good with it. I was very confident with those things, with the computer, with dealing with that, same with Simon Wells. Other people were not. Do what you're good at. The changes are, like you said before, when Sir Alex Ferguson left, Ed Woodward stepped into a place of David Gill, but that was not his merit. His merit was business. His merit was building the brand. And it took a quite a while also for Manchester United to um, appoint a director of football. And now they got a director of football and they got a technical director, you know, because that is something, but because Richard Arnold understands, no, my brief... My, my expertise lies building the brand and he's done an outstanding job. 
you know, in that respect. People forget sometimes that, but Richard has been very, very important for the club in the way that he built that brand. But he also knew I have to stay away from football because I don't know. I don't understand that business. And that is where it went wrong at the moment because if you never if you never really dealt with agents and 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 and, and all that, and you know how it goes. When Man United come knocking, the price goes up straight away, five times. So you have to you have to be able to deal with that, to manage that. And you need to have people that understand the industry. And if you don't, you know, if, you know, people take it take advantage of you. But the key is that you had you had a time on the Swellich Ferguson, you know, where they build that culture and identity based on stability and continuity. And that that fell, fell away, and that was uh, replaced by uncertainty and inconsistency. And that is what we've seen over the last ten years. When you realise a revamp is needed from a coaching point of view, a talent ideation point of view, or a manager's point of view, talk to us a little bit about the process because this is what I think people understand the least in football. Everyone sees players performing one season and then maybe the next season there's a slight dip. And from a fan point of view, they'll see it as a surprise and then there might be panic in the media and urgency. But clubs are obviously planning multiple windows ahead. So we've seen a Chelsea rebuild from old to young. We're seeing a Liverpool rebuild. As you've just alluded to, when Sir Alex Ferguson left, it needed a rebuild, but he was still able to win a Premier League title. At what point do you start to think about replacing a player? Because when I speak to people, sometimes I'm told it's almost the day they sign them. I think it was Sven Joran Eriksson said to me when he was at Manchester City, the day they signed a goalkeeper, I think it might have been Joe Hart, they were looking at a possible list of replacements that early. So are revamps a surprise usually, or is it far more of a science than people realise? It's it's a bit it's a bit of both. I, I remember Sir Alex saying he was always trying to to have about three, maximum four players when he felt the players in a cycle because players come into you know, like uh, how do you best describe it? They come into the club um, as a new signing, so to speak, or they come throughout the youth system. And then you get sort of the uh, the early years of the, of the seasons, the one or two seasons to settle in. But then you get the performance years, the performance curve that you want to keep going as much as you can. And the trick is to, to find and identify when that, you know that that performance curve starts start to taper off, start to dip, and um, you know that is obviously uh, something that you your eyes are an important factor of that, and the experience that go with it. There's suddenly that you can see that the pitch becomes too big, uh, they're just losing a yard, uh, the stats are not backing the performances up as they usually do, you know, and, and for whatever reason, something things go stale. So the the, the but like you call it a revamp, like if you change or add three or four players, that's not really a revamp. You know, that is just you carrying on, but you filter players in, you filter players out to making sure that you keep maintaining that level of performance and the success that you're after. Liverpool is going through a similar process at the moment by letting Fabinho and Henderson and Milner go. They were the senior players, the strongholders, very important players in the dressing room. So that has to be, you know, taken care of. You know, because the hierarchy will change, uh, and every manager goes through those things. You know, um, you, know, it, it, you know, it's interesting for me that, for instance, Manchester City has let Gundogan go, which I think was an instrumental player. So you always have those those things, but the key is to making sure that you identify those players. And at the end of the day, sometimes you have to say, "Listen, there's a market value for this player, and there, there is and there is a market for him. This is the time, for instance, to sell." That was, for instance. The idea behind, you know, selling Yarb Stump at the time, whereas, you know, probably we all thought he could have carried on. But those things happen and that's then the decisions that they make. What do you think of the, the transfer business now? This is, the, this is the rebuild. This is the Eric Ten Hag rebuild, isn't it? Anana coming in in goal. You've got Mason Mount. You've got Hoyland coming. Do you feel these are good signings? Yes, they're good signings because Eric Ten Hag wants them. And I think the most important thing for every manager is that when you go to a club and you've got a lot of people involved, but you want the signings that you want, these people have to work for you and say, these are the players that I want. And this is the reasons why I want to bring them in. 
Onana is a straightforward one because he knows him from working with Ajax. Very strong personality, strong character, very good with his feet. You will see that. Um, Mason Mount, I think, is a player that, again, Eric likes because if you if you if you try to to find what Eric wants the team to do is high energy and high intensity, sustained high intensity. Mason has played in the Premier League. I think he also bought him with an eye to the future, with maybe Eriksen getting older, and 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 Fernandez, Casimiro. So he brought a bit of youth in there, and then Hoyland, obviously. Everybody was talking about which striker they're going to bring in. Obviously, big discussions about Harry Kane, which 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 would be a perfect signing as well because you know he's going to score you 25 to 30 plus goals, which probably is going to have you challenging for, you know, for the title amongst other goals scored by other players. Hoyland is still an uncertainty because he is a young player, very young. He's he's raw. Um, had a few seasons now in, in Italy, see where he come from, but the Premier League is a different animal. So we have to wait and see how he how he starts when he when he's finally fit. But I do think they're all they're all good signings. Have they got enough in depth again? Because I think the one thing that Eric is looking to get rid of in this season is that inconsistency again in terms of when they did drop off in certain games, that they can't drop off to such a level that they can't really get anything out of the game that they did about nine or ten times, you know, and we all know which games they were, but there were some performances where they, they, they were never in the game. And I think that is one thing that he's looking to 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 uh, to put right this season. Because if there was something about a Sir Alex Ferguson and, and a Rennie Moulinstein um, side, even if you weren't playing well, you'd more or less always get something out of the game, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, see, the manager he re- reiterated that all the time to the player. Every performance from us was based on hard work. He said it to the players many times. Hard work is, is, a, is a quality. It's the most important quality because that gives you the right to shine in, in, in the way that you want to play. But it's all based on hard work. And if it's for whatever reason, it doesn't really come off the way that we want. And we have to scrap and fight. And You know, if we can outplay them, great. But if we have to outfight them or outrun them, we have to do that. And the one ill wins are the most important ones in winning a title. They are the hardest. They're the hardest points to get because, uh, you know, the results are marginal, uh, but they have the biggest effect. What advice would you give to Rasmus Hoyland and how do you think Manchester United will handle his integration into first team football? Because we know the pressure of playing in that role at a club like Manchester United and maybe historically some of the names that have come through have been a bit more integrated in the club or the Premier League because they've come through the academy first but there's been plenty of instances of course at Manchester United where they have just brought a quality foreign striker as well but maybe the difference is that this isn't an established foreign quality striker this is a young player that might take three or four years to fully settle and reach his best at Manchester United so how do you think Manchester United will handle that and what are the keys to Hoyland succeeding at Old Trafford well what I've seen of him I, I like him I like the makeup of him he's he's, a, he's he's fairly tall he's strong he's quick he likes to run in behind um, so if that connection is there with other players in the midfield or even the back line that, that can recognise his positions especially when the space at the back he will exploit that um, you know he can score a goal <clears throat> but the key is in those positions you want to become a goal scorer and yeah it has also to do a lot Ben with his own personality what sort of character is he himself if he is if he's a very stable character that doesn't really get carried away with what's happening around him he'd be fine because the only thing you need to do, you know, so Alex Ferguson would say two things to him, just keep working hard, keep working hard in your game, keep improving and enjoy it. Enjoy it. That's the most important thing, you know, and all the other people that really have maybe an opinion on you can't really do anything for you. It, it's it's you and the people here that are there to help you, you know, to help you establish. And certain players, they, they picked it up because they've got such a strong character and personality uh, and a no-nonsense approach, they will start going and they, they hit the ground running. Other ones might be a little bit more sensitive to those things, but they, these are things we have to find out. We don't know. That's all speculation because we don't know exactly what sort of um, 
you know, what sort of player Highland is. Who were the quick ones to to pick it up for you, Rene? Who who you could walk out on a pitch and start telling them something, and you and you go, he'll get it straight away. Well, I have to say, in in, in obviously my time <clears throat> that I've worked with that squad, it was such a talented squad, but also at the same time such an experienced squad that you know um, it didn't take much for us because we had two sort of sides to it. From a defensive side, it was important that people understood the roles and the jobs and take the responsibilities. There was no coming away from that. So if we press, we press in certain players in certain areas and this is your job and this is your job. That is very straight. But in possession and especially going forward, there was a lot of freedom. We just we just highlighted the, the opposition we were going to play against. We highlighted their, their weaknesses or where we could exploit them and we showed them the options. And then it was to the players to making sure that they would have, that they, with the options that we would give them, <clears throat> you know, make their own decisions because that enhances creativity. If you go too much structured in, in possession, players start to think too much, they start to overthink and therefore it delays the decision-making process and everything goes slow. But if somebody does come and plays from, from intuition, like a Paul Scholes, like a Ryan Giggs, like a Reen Rooney, they come up, they, they, they pull something out of the head that you think, well, where, where is this coming from? But that is the beauty of the game. And that is what you want to enhance. And that is what we say all the way the time. You know, off you go. Show us what you can do. You know, excite us. Um, uh, <clears throat> but that is, um, that was, I think, one of our biggest strengths uh, in that respect, that we, we had that in, in, in the team and uh, but I have to say just to come back to your question Angus when Robin walked through the door I've never seen such an easy seamless transition from somebody that played for so long for Arsenal coming into our team and the only thing I had to do one day was bring in all the midfielders and, and, and the back line together to show Robin's specific way how we run Robin wasn't a sprinter Robin wasn't a glider but he was always sort of on the on the blind shoulder of the opposition and he he created just a small window and that had midfield players or, or, or players in the back line had to recognise that because that's the moment where they had to give that ball. I can give you one example of obviously one of the goals that everybody remembers when we won the league against Aston Villa and that came, that came straight from the training ground. That came straight from the training ground because I had a, a session set up with Rafael and Fabio as the wingbacks, Scholes and Rooney as the two sort of sixes and from Persia and Chicharito was the two strikers. And it was all about diagonal movement. So the moment that the ball was played into midfield, strikers would cross over, and then this ball was diagonally hit over the top on the on the blind side of the you know of the of the center defender, which he, he did by Vlaar. And that was perfectly executed by Wayne Rooney and, 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 and Robin, who hits it on the volley. But these are the things that we manufactured in training, and then it's for the players to recognize it and execute it in a game. Brilliant stuff. It's amazing when it when you do that on the. You must be so pleased when you when you see it on the training ground and you work it out, and then actually, you know, you use it to win a title. It's it's not a, not a bad way to um, you know put that on your CV and go, Bosh, yeah, we we did that. We did that my way. Um, just looking forward, Rene, what do you see for this season for United with or without the Blazers? Uh, I think uh, they will be better than. Than last year, I think again for Eric as well. You have to every time if you want to improve, you want to progress, you want more. Last year, I said for Eric was a good season, winning a trophy, uh, playing another you know FA Cup final, but but losing it to to Man City unfortunately, uh, and and uh, ending up Champions League uh, third. Now the thing is that is that they want to start bridging that gap closer to <clears throat> whoever's the league leaders, or they want to become the league leaders themselves and protect that place. That's what United is all about. That's why those players have come in. Now, I know, listening to Eric recently, that he is managing those expectations, and, and, and rightly so. He does that in the right way. Uh, because, obviously, you always have to see, you know, how, you, how you're going to start the league, you know? And if you have a, have a strong start, that, that breeds belief, that breeds confidence, that also creates a little bit of fear in opposition. But you first have to have that start out of the way. So after 10 games... You can see where have we started? Have we started absolutely top-notch or are we still a little bit here or have we actually started all on the par? So that's why I think he's managing those expectations a little bit because he first wants to make sure that 
that all the players in the team are firing for all cylinders, you know, starting by with tonight against Wolves. <clears throat> I think when we were talking last week and we were asking, um, uh, Rude Hullet was on last week and uh, asking him where he thought United would be and, and I had to give my opinion and I said third um, would, would be where they'd end up. They'd be behind City and Arsenal uh, again. Uh, but Ben, just throwing to you, um, this takeover, you don't see it as, as happening imminently and you still think there's a long way to go before the Glazers actually hand over the keys to the club? Well, if they hand over the keys to the club and should it happen, we should point out even an announcement doesn't mean an acquisition. So should board approval be procured and if the Glazers make up their mind to make an announcement and either pick one of the two groups that have publicly declared their interest, Sheikh Jassim, Sir Jim Ratcliffe or any minority investor, there's still a completion process, which is really important to point out because that can take optimistically six weeks, pessimistically 12 weeks, and it will include mergers and acquisitions, approvals, the Premier League owners and directors test, and ultimately the transfer of funds. So nothing is just going to happen today, tomorrow, but with any takeover, and especially with a publicly listed company, there may have to be some kind of clarity sooner rather than later. But that can only happen when, one, the Glazers make a decision, and there's six of them. So the Essing Glazers is important. I think people sort of glibly assume that there's always been unity or that it's just the Glazers and they're not engaging with the fan base. It's six different people. It's siblings. They've got different shares. They've got different opinions. So first of all, they have to come to a unified position. And then second of all, the groups have to be in a position where they're effectively ready to sign. So what we've seen is multiple groups treated like preferred bidders, which is commonly associated with exclusivity. And that exclusivity hasn't been provided because it allows for maximum competitive tension without it. And as a result, it's a very atypical takeover that's played out very publicly, even though the Glazers never made a categorical promise that they would definitely sell. So now we have to understand, one, are the groups ready to sign? Two, do the Glazers accept because of the fan position, because of the club position, because of the money on the table that they are prepared to sell? Or are they looking for a different solution? And then three, if there is to be progress from here onwards, how long is it going to take? And are Manchester United going to give an indication of the direction of travel before everything is in place? So because of those variables, I think that we have to urge a little bit of caution due to the amount of rumour that's flying around. And the other thing in all of this is, perversely, it matters less now than it did when the process first started, because the process started with a view to getting a new owner in for the window. And now that new owner is not going to be able to influence the window should they be successful. So you could argue that if it takes another week, month, even year, it won't matter to the Glazers. And it probably never did matter to the Glazers, as harsh as that sounds, as selfish as that sounds, as annoyed as the fan base will be by me saying that that's the reality of the Glazers. They're looking at this from a business point of view. And as a consequence, until they get their deal, they're going nowhere. But when they get their deal, things will start to move. So we have to see now with the Club World Cup and it being expanded with the Premier League growth, with money even in Saudi Arabia and the opportunity for Manchester United to grow their brand there, whether that's changed anything. But for now, I would say urge caution by the notion of a today, tomorrow, a next day announcement and think more about Manchester United's football starts to the season and then from there, clarity will come. Well, it also means that we'll probably be talking about the takeover of Manchester United on the debrief in, in the weeks and, and months to come. That That's probably the way it's going to be, as, as we've already done in in the short time that we've been on air. Well, that is your football debrief. Uh, huge thanks to our guest this week, Rennie Moulinstein, uh, whose book, United, Sir Alex and Me, is out now. Presumably, uh, Rennie, available everywhere. Yes, as far as I know, it's obviously uh, available on Amazon. It's available in all the uh, recognised bookstores. So uh, should be no problem. Get a hand on a copy. 
Excellent. Well, it's we really appreciate you coming on the debrief. It's been great to have you. And as always, our thanks to Fabrizio Romano for dropping in. Remember, he will be here every week giving us his spin on all the big transfer dealings around the world. Uh, ben, uh, which country are you in next week? <laughs> Still in Saudi Arabia, I think, actually. I go from Daman to Riyadh to Jeddah and home. Brilliant. Well, one day you'll be back paying your taxes. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you and your debrief next week.